right, once again, it's time for Q&A. Your questions, my answers. If you want to ask me any question, just go to any video on the YouTube channel. Just type in your question and uh, I'll take the ones that I really like and I'll answer them. Shorter is better. Longer questions, especially essays, theories of the universe. I can't really handle them here. So keep your questions short and I'll try and pick them up and answer them here. All right, let's get started. Yora. What does it mean for a black hole to rotate? We can't see the matter inside because the event horizon hides it and the event horizon itself is not an object. So how do we know that the black hole is rotating? There are very few things that you can actually know about a black hole. One is its mass and the other thing that you can know is its rotation. If you imagine obviously with a black hole it's surrounded by this event horizon so you can't you can't know what the black hole itself is doing, but what happens is that the black hole, as it's rotating, the faster it's rotating, its event horizon actually flattens out, kind of like the way the Earth is flattened, flattened out, or the way Jupiter is flattened out. You know, the faster something rotates, the more that flattens out. And so astrophysicists can actually calculate and measure sort of what that flattening is doing. So this idea of the naked singularity, which you can imagine a time where the, where the, event, the black hole is rotating so quickly that the, that the event horizon flattens out to the point that the black hole is revealed. And actually the laws of physics prevent this. You can't rotate as fast as the speed of light, and so you can never get to this place where the black hole, the actual singularity, can be revealed by the rotation of the event horizon. One of the other things that astronomers can see is the material that is, that is accreting into the black hole. They can actually measure its movement around the black hole. And in some cases with some like supermassive black holes and such, they clock this stuff at a significant portion of the speed of light. Literally as fast as these things can rotate, they do rotate. It's a pretty mind-bending accomplishment for, for black holes. Simon Cargi, Pierre Fraser, any idea how much we could discover our own solar system if we lived around TRAPPIST-1 with our current technology? Would we discover Jupiter or Earth first? How would James Webb Space Telescope help studying our solar system if it was in a TRAPPIST second Earth L2? We were able to see TRAPPIST-1 and the planets around TRAPPIST-1 because it's a red dwarf star. It has a fraction of the mass of and size of our own sun. And then able to see the dimming of the light as these, these planets move in front of it. If we were trying to see the sun, that's a more massive star, it's a much brighter star, it's a lot harder to tease out that difference of brightness. At this point astronomers are able to see Jupiter mass objects, Jupiter sized objects around other stars like our own sun. And Kepler was supposed to be able to do this, but then Kepler lost one of its its ability to track and so they had to focus on just these red dwarf stars. There's a whole new uh, instrument coming out called TESS. That's going to be coming out 2018 I think and that should have the capability to be able to see these planets, these Earth-sized planets around yellow stars like our Sun. So right now our current technology wouldn't be able to discover Earth from from TRAPPIST-1. Give us a couple of years, we should be able to do that. James Webb will definitely be able to make better observations, but it's not a planet hunter. So we're gonna be able to do follow-up observations with James Webb, but not necessarily discover these things in the first place. XXX, XXX, could you please answer this question? What would happen if Earth suddenly switched places with Mars? 
if Earth and Mars switch places, and we're living on Earth, the biggest change that would happen is that we would now be much further away from the Sun than we are today. And that means that the Earth would become a lot colder. I don't know if, if it would become so cold that it would be completely uninhabitable, but the ice caps would grow tremendously. You might get an area in the tropics where the atmosphere is thick enough to still be able to, to support liquid water but it would just become a much, much colder planet. And this is one of the reasons why Mars is such a difficult planet for us to try and live on. It's that much further from the sun. The atmosphere is so much thinner. It's just a colder, more desolate place. And if we switched places, we would enjoy that significant drop in temperature. So I don't think we should do this. I, I vote against it. Patrick Bergenholt. What happens when a black hole loses enough mass through Hawking radiation to no longer have enough to be a black hole? Will something pop out? Black holes, the, the, we've done a, did an episode on this, that the black hole, the size of the black hole is inversely proportional to its temperature. A black hole that is incredibly massive, a supermassive black hole is very cold. A black hole that is very, um, uh, that is very small is relatively warmer. You get to a, a black hole that's maybe a little less massive than the moon and it's closing in on room temperature. Or maybe it's like the size of a, an asteroid, like Vesta. It's about room temperature. And as you get smaller and smaller and smaller, the black hole gets hotter and hotter and hotter because it's evaporating this temperature faster and faster and faster. And when the black hole gets low enough mass, it just fires out the remaining energy in this very bright blast. And there's never a point when it's not a black hole. It's a black hole until the final particles are released as radiation and the thing is gone. And this is maybe how we will be able to detect black holes in the future is seeing them evaporate out there in, in space as they release that last little bit of energy. Mr. Valved, hey Fraser, how do astronomers keep track of all the stars and planets orbiting them, considering they're all moving? The stars are moving, but not very quickly, right? It, you know, astronomers can actually detect really how far away stars are, and part of it is how quickly they're moving sideways in the sky from year to year. But from day to day, they don't move that much. Now the planets are going around the star, but in many cases, what the astronomers are looking for, they're measuring the star, not the planet. They're measuring the either the motion of the star backwards and forwards as it's going towards us and away from us as the planets are, are yanking it around with their gravity, or they're measuring the amount of light that is dimming from the star itself. And that's, and that's really all they're trying to track. So astronomers, they just track the star and they don't really have to worry about the motion of the star because it's not really moving very quickly over, over short periods of time when they're doing their observations. If they were tracking it over years for certain stars, they would actually have to recalibrate its position year after year after year as the star is drifting sideways in the sky. A. Rupuen. This man is paid by the NSA and Sputnik to cover up Nibiru. Don't believe a word he says. <laughs> by, by the NSA, but not NASA and Sputnik. What is the, does Sputnik pay money? Anyway, I'm assuming you're a troll, but, but for the people who genuinely believe in Nibiru, 
I just want to remind you that we have been debunking the existence of Nibiru for the entire length of my career as a space journalist. We were debunking it in 1997, 90, 20 years, I've been, 18 years, I've been debunking this, the, that people have been threatening that this planet is going to come our way for literally 20 years now, longer than that. And it hasn't arrived and it's not going to arrive because it doesn't exist. And remember 2012? Remember how everyone was panicked that the world was going to end in 2012 and the planet was going to flip over and the poles were going to shift and it didn't happen? So you can safely assume that all of these, these things are hoaxes unless you hear it from the kinds of sources that, that you can trust. Like, well, like me, of course, but, but like NASA and the European Southern Observatory and uh, the, the European Space Agency, that there are serious astronomers that are seriously studying the universe and that if there was anything that was going to be coming our way, they would detect it and they would announce it. These things are impossible to hide. The night sky is there for all of us to see. Anyone with a telescope can see these things. Amateurs regularly discover teeny tiny asteroids very far away that are moving in completely safe orbits and are the ones who get to name them. And don't you think that these people would notice a planet moving towards us? So, bottom line, I'm, of course, the vast majority of you watching this, you're giggling that I even took this comment, but uh, for those of you who are on the fence, don't be afraid, don't be concerned by this thing. In many cases, these people have like a book to sell you, or they're, they're just looking to scare and frighten you, or they're just trolling, because they think it's hilarious to see people freak out because they think that the world is gonna end. The world is not gonna end for another five billion years, so don't worry about it. Ron Mason, I still don't understand why radiation is needed to counteract the gravity in stars. I mean, Earth doesn't need radiation to do this, right? Why is it different for stars? When you think of a star, at the very core of the star is the hydrogen that is fusing into helium at the core of the star. And that, that process releases energy. It is a exothermic reaction, so it releases more energy than it takes. The form of energy that is released is gamma radiation, which is essentially just photons, x-rays, infrared radiation, radio waves, it's all just the same thing. But in a star, there releases gamma radiation. That gamma radiation then is, you know, you can imagine it's kind of bubbling around inside the star, and that acts as a pressure that is pushing that outward. And that is counteracting the gravity that's trying to pull the star inward. With the Earth, the Earth does not have a core that is generating radiation in through fusion. I mean, it does have a, a hotter core, but it's just, you know, the temperatures and the pressures, it's nowhere near large enough and hot enough to generate the, the energy. But what the Earth has that, you know, that's pulling it into a ball is the, essentially the gravity in all directions is, is pulling it inward. And the thing that's pushing it outward, that's counteracting that force is the compressibility of metal and rock and dirt, right? That is what is, that is what's pushing against the gravitational force that's pulling it inward. If the gravitational force was stronger, then it would compress the earth in more tightly. If the gravitation, 
gravitation was weaker, then Earth wouldn't be pulled in as tightly as it does. And an interesting way to sort of think about that is places like Jupiter, which is a fairly large gas planet. If the force of gravity was stronger, it would pull Jupiter in tighter until the pressure of the gas bouncing off of each other would reach a new equilibrium. So, uh, you know, stars, it's the outward force by just by light itself, which is still kind of mind-bending to think about with a place like Earth. It is the it is just the compressibility of rock and metal that stops it from compressing any further. Peter Hool. Since the Milky Way is more visible from the Southern Hemisphere, does that mean that many of the stars that we see in the Northern Hemisphere are located outside our galaxy? Every single star that you can see in the night sky is located within our galaxy. You cannot see a star with your own eyeballs that, that isn't within our galaxy. In fact, pretty much all of the stars that you can see are pretty close to us uh, within a few dozen light years. or they're incredibly bright stars, some of the largest, brightest stars. So when you look up in the night sky and you see stars, those stars are either very close, within a few dozen light years, or they're very large, bright, supermassive stars that are that, that could be a few hundred light years away, but are you know dozens of times the you know ten times the, the mass of our sun, or twenty times the mass of our sun, or Betelgeuse. Well, I forget what it is like. 30 times the mass of the sun. So, so that's the kinds of stars that you're seeing. Now there are some objects that we can see that are outside of our galaxy like Andromeda. And you can, if you live in fairly dark skies and you know where to look, you can see this little fuzzy patch in the sky and that's Andromeda. And it's two and a half million light years away. And it's, and that's really one of the only things that you can see with your own eyes that is outside of our, of our Milky Way. So when you're seeing stars outside of the disk of the Milky Way, it's just that they are, you know, not everything is in this perfect flat disk of the Milky Way. Some things are going to be a little above us and some things are going to be a little bit below us. And, but in general, the vast majority of the stars that we see are through that disk of the Milky Way. So nope, everything that you can see is in the Milky Way and is really close. Jean-Luc Volcker. Could we terraform Titan? Titan would be a really tough world to terraform. The problem is, is that Titan is located orbiting around Saturn, which is well outside what's called the frost line of the solar system. That's the point where, where water will can be a liquid exposed to the radiation from the sun. When you think about all of, of uh, Saturn's moons, Enceladus, and Hyperion and things like that, they are really just balls of ice or comets that are orbiting around uh, Saturn. And if you brought them within the orbit of the Earth, for example, they would just melt. So it's liquid water just really can't happen out by Titan. Titan is so cold, 100, more than 100 degrees below zero centigrade. Uh, now, the great thing about Titan is that it does have this really thick, atmosphere. It's like one and a half times the, the pressure of Earth. And so you wouldn't need a pressurized spacesuit to walk around on Titan. You would just need a really good coat and a way to breathe. But it would be colder than the coldest day Earth has ever experienced. There's not a lot we can do to fix that without making big domes and living under domes. 
uh, which would be cool and we should totally do that, but I, I can't think of an easy way. Now, in the far, far future, when the sun expands as a red giant star, then the habitable zone of the solar system is going to extend outward and it may very well include Titan and we'll have this period where Titan is a lot warmer and maybe we could terraform it. But for now, I can't think of any way that we could terraform Titan. Philip Diaz. Can we have a hybrid star with the core of a neutron star and the outside part of a white dwarf caused by a merger? So you can imagine a situation where you've got a binary star, you've got a neutron star and a white dwarf star and they're rotating around each other and they're getting closer and closer together and then they merge. But, but when that happens, you get a gamma ray burst. There's a, there's a certain classification of gamma ray bursts that seem to be uh, the merger of two exotic objects like a neutron star and a white dwarf. So you can't get this happening in slow motion where they sort of meld together and form this new object. You just get this detonation. And there's some of the most violent and explosive events that we have in the entire universe. We can see these, these, these gamma ray bursts from across hundreds of millions of light years. So I can't imagine that you could have it come together in a very slow and, and gentle way. I mean, even a white dwarf star, if you accrete enough material onto a white dwarf star, it explodes as a supernova and it just needs a little bit of mass so that even a white dwarf on its own is just gonna detonate. There are some more exotic objects. I think we talked about it in, a, in an older video, about how you could get a neutron star inside another star, inside a red giant star or a, consuming it from within. But once you get to a white dwarf, kaboom, it's the only outcome, nothing. How can we see the atmosphere of exoplanets if we can't see the planets themselves, just shadows on their host star? When astronomers study a star, they use a technique called spectroscopy. And what they're doing is they're essentially taking the light of the star, they're using a prism to expand that spectrum out to see all of the different chemicals that are in that star. And so different kinds of light are gonna produce different prisms, and that'll tell you what the star is made of. And so the way the astronomers will find these is they, they will study the star, and then they'll figure out what the chemical constituents of the star are, and then they'll watch when the planet goes past and measure the chemical constituents of the planet plus the star. And then they subtract out the parts that are clearly coming just from the planet, and that tells them what the atmosphere is going to be. It's a very, uh, very complicated technique, and it is requires very powerful telescopes and very precise observations. And the fact that it's even possible is quite amazing. And yet this is where we are in the study of exoplanets. And over the next few decades, we're gonna get a better and better sense of, of the atmospheres of, of other worlds out there. There's other uh, observatories that can do this. There's like NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. There's gonna be the James Webb Space Telescope. These are infrared telescopes, which are really ideally position to be able to make the kinds of observations that will tell them what these atmospheres around cooler objects like planets are made of. So stay tuned. This is, I think, going to be the next big area of the announcements and the discoveries is more, you know, up until this point, we've been finding planets. Now we're going to be observing their atmospheres. We are Stardust. Fraser, do you believe in gods or spirits? I don't. How about you? Just asking. I'm what you would call a skeptic. I am a skeptic of all things. I'm a skeptic of, of supernatural. I am a skeptic of health claims. I'm a skeptic of 
any truth claim that ever, anybody ever makes. And that includes gods. So you could classify as an atheist, but really I'm a skeptic. Uh, that said, I don't really, you know, if you've watched enough of this channel, I don't really talk about it here on the channel. I don't, I'm not really interested in having debates about people's religion. And a lot of people who are really fascinated about space and astronomy are also religious people and that's fine by me I mean you know we are all here to share our love of astronomy and our love of our excitement and enthusiasm for the exploration of the universe we can agree on that we don't have to talk about the other stuff so if some of the things that I say or some of the the things that astronomers have discovered conflict with your beliefs and your tenets I'm sorry I don't want to tell you. <laughs> this is what the universe, this is what nature is telling us, showing us is, is reality and, and truth. And this is the, this, I prefer to let the universe tell me what is really true. All right, well, another week, another question show. Thanks to everyone who asked all those questions. I hope the answers were helpful. As always, go anywhere you want onto the YouTube channel, Put your question in, and I will gather them all up and answer them in this uh, format. All right, we'll see you all next week.